Welcome to the 10th episode of the Jesuit Schools Network Ignatian Inquiry Podcast. The JSN seeks to be a supportive resource to our member schools, and this podcast is designed to be just that, a carved out space to listen, learn, and engage with issues that matter to our collective work as Ignatian educators. We're eager to encourage a spirit of inquiry across the many layers of our work in Jesuit education. We envision our particular brand of inquiry to be the art of inquiry as seen through our Ignatian lens, asking questions and exploring issues that matter in our schools through the frame of our shared Jesuit mission. On today's episode, we'll explore the experiences of Father Steve Katsouris, CEO and founder of the Come to Believe Network, a mission-based organization that works to provide higher education institutions an innovative college model that's inclusive and accessible to students who are often underrepresented at selective universities. From Father Katsouris' first-hand experience in crafting the unique culture at Loyola University Chicago's Arupe College, We'll learn about the value in building ecosystems of support for marginalized students and how impactful these students are on larger institutions. We'll talk about Father Katsouris' vast experience as a startup leader in Jesuit education and the skills needed to cultivate an asset culture in our communities. This conversation encourages school settings across the JSN to learn from our colleagues in higher education about accelerating paths to access and equity in our schools. A member of the United States East Province of the Society of Jesus, Father Steve Katsouris is the president and CEO of the Come to Believe Network in New York City. From 2014 until August 2020, Father Katsouris served as the founding dean and executive director of Arupe College at Loyola University, Chicago. Prior to his assignment at Arupe, Father Katsouris served as the director of the Institute for Catholic Educational Leadership and associate dean of the School of Education at the University of San Francisco. From 2002 to 2011, Father Katsouris was president of Loyola High School, a co-ed Jesuit high school on Manhattan's Upper East Side. His doctorate from Columbia University Teachers College is in organizational leadership. His research interests are leadership, governance, and institutional performance. He was ordained in 1998. Currently, Father Katsouris is a trustee at Cristo Rey Jesuit High School and Josephina Academy of the Sacred Heart in Chicago, Regis High School in New York, St. Mary's College in South Bend, Indiana, and St. Peter's University in Jersey City, New Jersey. His book about the launch of Arupe College, Come to Believe How the Jesuits Are Reinventing Education Again, was published by Orbis in 2017 and received an award from the Christophers in 2018. Because of the success of Arupe College and its students, Father Katsouris moved to New York in August 2020 to design and create Come to Believe, a foundation and network that will replicate and scale the Arupe model nationally. Dr. Kristen Ross-Cully, JSN's Director of Inquiry and New Ventures, joins us for this conversation on such an important topic. Dr. Cully and Father Katsouris, welcome to the podcast. How is everyone doing today? Thanks very much for that terrific intro, and I'm honored to be involved with JSN. Uh, you know, I've got a, a long-ago background with pre-secondary education and secondary ed in Jesuit schools, and uh, I, again, thank you for uh, inviting me to talk a little bit about my current work at Come to Believe. 
Steve, we are so happy to uh, have you here with us today. You've long been a part of the JSN, so it's it's terrific to carve out some time to to get to to pick your brain about all of the really amazing work that you have done. So thank you for being here. Thanks, Kristen. And now you've been busy, so you've been traveling. And how has the start of the school year been? Uh, very exciting. You know, uh, so Come to Believe offers design grants to universities that are interested in our model and really need, need to do their due diligence before they just launch a new academic unit or a new college on their campus. And so thanks to generous donors to Come to Believe, we offer grants for um, universities to set up design teams to really do a feasibility study, to kick the tires, to learn about the model, to prepare uh, for possibly opening their version of a two-year college based on our work at Arupe College, based on the replication of Arupe at the University of St. Thomas, the Doherty Family College. So, you know, this, this year we're working with Canisius University in Buffalo, Xavier University in Cincinnati, Holy Cross in Notre Dame, Indiana, University of Portland in Oregon, the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, uh, and the University of San Diego in California. And in, in addition, we're facilitating a partnership between Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles and Mount St. Mary's University, also located in Los Angeles. The possibility of those two institutions creating a two-year college based on our model for the homies in, in L.A. I'm talking to you right now from Chicago. I've been working here. One of the things that we've been working on is these uh, design grant recipients, representatives from all these universities, visiting Arupe College, two-year college. I was the founding dean. Uh, I was the dean there for six years. It's always good for my soul to return and to really hear stories from uh, my former colleagues, faculty, and staff, and particularly from current students. And you know, I think that experience uh, is transformative for these universities as they're considering and trying to see how this model might fit on their campus. They participate in virtual retreats with us on the curriculum and on the wraparound support services of our model, and also to how to finance and fundraise for this model. But, you know, really meeting students. So it was a thrill on our panel of current second year students. One was the younger brother of a student who was there during my time, so it was fun to reconnect. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the um, representatives from these design grant recipient universities asked the students, if you had not gone to Arufe College, where would you have gone to college? And the first student, who was a graduate of a charter high school here in Chicago, said, oh, you know, I, I couldn't afford to go to college. I, I wouldn't be in college right now. The young man whose brother I knew he had gone to Loyola Academy, actually, in Wilmette. And he said, yeah, I wouldn't be in college right now without a rupee. I would be, um, I'd be working somewhere. The third student, a graduate of Priester Ray Jesuit High School um, here in Chicago, she just said, I don't know where I'd be without a rupee. So, I mean, I found those remarks very simple and not maudlin. There, was, there were no violence playing, but just very matter of fact about the realities of these students as first-gen students, how to navigate going from high school to a two-year college and then finding a college where they belong, where they experience community, where they're supported, and uh, where the focus is on them, on building community with them, on 
learning from them on hearing about their goals, and then supporting them across the finish line so that they can complete a two-year credential, an associate degree at a competitive selective university like Loyola, and do it in a way so that they have no debt. 90% of our graduates report when they complete either at Arupe or at the Darty Family College at the University of St. Thomas, they complete with no debt. And then they're equipped with that degree to either to continue either at Loyola or St. Thomas or to transfer to a four-year school or they're prepared for the workplace. And over 80% of the graduates of these schools continue on uh, for a four-year bachelor's degree after getting the associate degree. I mean, it's remarkable. It just the what you just said that the young student said, I don't know where I'd be without Arupe. That probably really encaptures in such a simple way all of the incredible work that you do. So what is the Come to Believe Network? Tell us about what, you know, if you had to describe it for our listeners here that are not familiar with it, what is it? So it's also the title of my book, uh, Come to Believe, How the Jesuits Are Reinventing Education Again. Um, Orbis is the publisher. It came in in 2017. It's on Amazon. Um, <laughs> and so Come to Believe is a line that is repeated in John's Gospel that I have found very consoling for years, maybe decades at this point. You know, Martha says, I've come to believe that you are the Lord. Peter says, I've come to believe that you are the Messiah. The guests at the wedding feast at Cana who knew Jesus come to believe in who he is. So for someone like me, I just find this so consoling because Martha, Peter, friends, colleagues, people he lived with, people he socialized with, they didn't understand who Jesus was right away. It was gradual. It was a process. It was a journey. They came to believe in who Jesus was. And uh, I, I've seen that process with the students at Arupe College during my six years there. They come to college first gen, hell eligible, undocumented often underprepared for academic success in a post-secondary environment, often underserved um, uh, in, uh, in other institutions. And they're uncertain. They think, you know, what am I doing at this college at Loyola? Loyola is for smart people. It's for rich people. It's for white people. Why am I here? And then they meet a professor who's an advocate and a champion for them. They take a class that they are really good in and it's transformative for them. They're in an environment where there are other uh, students who are also uncertain, but focused on going on to college, going on to get a bachelor's degree. And they come to believe that, wow, I'm good in statistics. I'm good in psychology. I'm good in education. I'm good in accounting. I'm a good writer. And they come to believe that, Wow, I do belong at a place like Loyola. I am finding community here. I'm contributing to the community here. I'm building community here. And they come to believe that, yeah, I'm definitely ready now after I get my associates at, well, this, in this case, it was a roof bed, but it's the same thing at Darty Family College. I'm ready to go on and major in business or major in social work or major in education or major in whatever it might be. Uh, or I'm ready with this degree. I'm better prepared now to go into uh, seeking a job. So this title of Come to Believe really is about these students and their experience. I'd say, so I started Come to Believe in 2020, great time, you know, in the midst of the, of the early days of the pandemic. And, um, you know, I did this because we were getting a lot of questions from other universities saying, God, how did you do this? And the students are graduating with no debt. And, 
they're raising a lot of money and their student outcomes are really extraordinary. So, so I thought, all right, you know, I can't serve two masters. I was still very engaged with Steen, certainly, but I wanted to get this other, come to believe, off the ground. So I see come to believe as having three roles. We're an accelerator. So universities that are interested in our model, uh, they find out from us how to do it. And is it, is it feasible on their campus? Are there enough students within commuting distance who are Pell eligible? Are the community colleges in their area underperforming? And then they do this design grant for a year. They have a year to kind of decide. So it's an accelerator. We're also a foundation. So as I said earlier, we provide seed funding for universities to explore our model. That's the design grant. It's a period of exploration for them. But then uh, we uh, also provide seed grants. So let's say we're confident that you can successfully launch and sustain uh, a replication of our model and your board has approved this then if you can match this come to believe provides a half million dollar grant it's a, a restricted gift which i hate receiving but um it's a restricted gift you know it's a recognition now you're hiring a dean and that dean needs to hire someone who's an admissions officer to recruit the first class they need some admin support so this is before you have any student revenue, before you have any Pell Grants coming in, you need to hire these people and pay them. That's what this grant is for. So we're also a foundation. And then finally, we're a network. So we've been an N of two, Arupe College and the Doherty Family College of the University of St. Thomas. And on November the 6th, I will be announcing that two more universities will be joining the Come to Believe Network. So um, there's a little bit of a cliffhanger for your listeners, but so we're growing in terms of, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be four institutions in our network. So I'm going to believe accelerator foundation and network. That's really how we function. Well, and the way that you're spreading geographically that by the introduction that you gave of all the different locations, I mean, you're really modeling that, that gradual process the journey right of of really growing and and making that whole idea come to life you know steve when i think about your work i think about you to me are a a model really a specialty of creating access and equity for kids who you know come from from backgrounds that maybe can't afford the type of education that 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 you know many of our schools are engaged in. So so when I think about the work that you've done, like what from your work in building a root bay and building this network and growing all of these seeds across the network, um, what have you learned? Like what what have you learned about creating access for kids that can't afford education? Yeah, I um, have several. I mean, first and foremost, it's funny. I was reading this morning in Diverse Issues in Higher Education. It's, you know, comes out daily. Um, This researcher was talking about DEI work, and he contended without belonging, the DEI work is, you know, nice, but it's not going to be enough. And so my colleagues at Arupe and I were very focused on students who were first gen who were underprepared for post-secondary ed. We made sure that they felt like they belong, meeting students where they're at, finding out what what their goals are for this degree. What are their interests? What are they curious about? So really focusing on belonging and on community. 
building community again, not doing community for them, but also doing community with them and making sure that they are facilitating what their community within this two-year college looks like and what are the values of that community. So much of the model is based on identifying the barriers that prevent students from being successful. Again, if you don't feel community, if you don't feel like you belong, you know, early on, we developed a very robust orientation program. This is a commuter model, but the orientation was residential at first and then several days at uh, the, the, the campus where belonging and community began, meeting your faculty advisor, meeting uh, other, your, all of your faculty members, having a roommate who will be your classmate, knowing where the school is, knowing what the resources are, the larger university, just knowing how you're going to commute. We also identified that we wanted to address food insecurity. So we created a breakfast and lunch program. And again, part of that was, yes, some of our students do experience food insecurity, but also part of this is me. Some of your listeners will uh, roll their eyes and chuckle about this. So my father, Nick the Greek Tetsouris, ran diners. So it was all about the food and food builds community. And he was right. And, you know, uh, part of this religion where important things happen at a meal. So, you know, we, we um, wanted to make sure that our students were building community over a hot breakfast and a hot lunch every day. Certainly our students experienced uh, mental health concerns. And so we created positions for social workers to provide that, that kind of support. Our model is based heavily on all students receiving financial aid. Pell grants and state aid, unless they're undocumented and they're ineligible. And so having a financial aid officer to help students and me navigate FAFSA, Pell grants, et cetera, was really critical. So all of those things, identifying those barriers, but then not being parked in barriers. We talked about our students as their assets and not their deficits. So here's a story about me. All of our students who are applicants interview. Uh, for a seat at one of our colleges. And I did the design for the first uh, um, interview protocol. It was like, all right, Kristen, tell us about an obstacle that you've um, experienced and what is it and how did you deal with it? And did you get help and from whom? And are you still in it? And if your little sister or brother were going through it, how would you advise them? So part of this, I was very influenced by Angela Duckworth's uh, amazing work on grit. And I was looking for persistence. But the implicit message to students were, well, you're from a low-income background. You must have an obstacle. You're a person of color. You must, you must have obstacles. And I thought, hmm, we don't want to convey that message up front. So my colleagues and I flipped that and we said, all right, there's an amazing community here at, in this case, Arupe College. You see the current students and they're really uh, so incredible about, about building community. And we're looking at your application and we see in you someone that could really contribute to our community, that you have a lot going for you that would make this place, which is pretty unique and special, even more unique and special. So tell us, what's one thing about yourself, a talent that you have, a gift that you have, something that you do well, that might build community here. That's the asset narrative. You are bringing something to us, not like, oh gosh, you're low income. Oh, you're from, you know, blah, 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 neighborhood, that, that kind of student. Finally, the importance of place. So 
our model really insists that there is room at the end, that there's space on the larger campus. That's a big part of the transformation because all of a sudden students are doing this two-year degree at a university where there are four-year degree programs and there are graduate uh, degree programs. They, they begin to demystify higher education and they begin to see themselves as going forward in it. So as uh, along with just participating in the life of the larger university, whether it's using the library, using the wellness center, getting involved in campus ministry, if it's the Catholic institution, doing intramurals, participating in affinity groups with the larger university, they begin to see themselves as part of four, a four-year program. And so continuing on, I mean, we really see ourselves as a bridge from high school to a a bachelor's degree. And I think being on campus with other four-year students uh, is a big part of that bridge. So those are some of the lessons that we've learned along the way during this two-year college model. And a lot of it we've learned from students. You know, the the whole idea of building, creating, nurturing an asset culture as opposed to a deficit culture. How did you know how to do that? You know, I also when I think of you, I think of you as a startup leader of educational settings, systems. You know, how did you know how to do that for the kids that you were working with that were coming from the backgrounds that they were coming from? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. You know. In terms of the startup, I mean, critical, and God was with me during these interviews, we hired well. We hired a lot of great faculty and administrators, many of whom had great depth in cultural competency and in culturally sustaining pedagogy. And so that was enormous in terms of creating this asset-based culture of of Arupe College. We were very aware of microaggressions, and we would call the larger university out on that. I mean, any article that was coming from uh, communications, you know, I would uh, gladly, and I'm grateful for this, you know, was uh, passed uh, by me to, to look at. I would say to the writer, look, this is very well written. Are the students always low income, low income, low income, low income? How about another descriptor? How about underserved? How about entrepreneurial? How about tenacious? How about, I mean, you know, there are lots of ways of describing these students. You can say that, yeah, they're from low wealth backgrounds, but then drop it. We get it. Enough already. Or if you say that they're Pell eligible, we all know what that means. So it really calling institu- the institution out on that. I remember, this is horrible. Um, we were a fledgling school. We wanted good PR. The, the, rec- the paper of record in Chicago is the Tribune. Our first graduation, extraordinary. The article was about Arupe College and the success of these students. But the title of the article was, Loyola Starts a New Program for the Vulnerable. Ugh. So I met with five graduating seniors uh, the day after that article came out. And, um, you know, we were talking. They were on the cover of my book, actually. I wanted to give them copies of my wow. book. And so I said, so how about that article on the trip? And they were being very polite, and I was being a pest. So I said, <laughs> what did you think about that? So, you know, one student who went on to Columbia College here in Chicago, she said, you know, Father, vulnerable. I'd rather be called poor than vulnerable. Another student said, hey, look, I'm going into the nursing program, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am not vulnerable. 
Another student said, look, I got into Georgetown. That's vulnerable. So, you know, the trip meant well, <laughs> you know, but um, that's not enough. And I think we need to educate partners and institutions and our own institutions. Uh, and our students are great at talking about microaggressions and how they want to be described. So, you know, when I think about being involved in startups, I mean, you know, certainly I was involved with one at St. Aloysius in Harlem that was a nativity model school and uh, a root bay college we played as a startup, come to believe as a startup, hiring well, people who are passionate and share these values. You've got to be entrepreneurial. You've got to seize opportunities. You know, higher education, I'm not telling tales at a school, moves at a very slow pace. And, you know, in a startup, there are going to be a lot of sharp elbows to get things done. And I was grateful that Loyola gave me space most of the time to to move quickly to get um, Arupe College up and running. You need to collaborate with uh, a solid board. So, Kristen, you know this. I have a doctorate from Columbia from Teachers College, and my area of research is on uh, the characteristics of high-performing boards of trustees for not-for-profits. And, you know, I still do some consulting work for boards. I just did a presentation for the boards of the uh, members of the JSN, which was super enjoyable, and it's great to reconnect with some old friends from secondary and pre-secondary ed in the Jesuit space. So these board members are critical, and they were critical for me, certainly in Chicago, because, you know, I wasn't from Chicago, and they really represented Arupe well. And they also, you know, I always brought students into board meetings to do kind of a board training, and they learned a lot from those students. I think from students, from board members, from the resources, the other resources that were out there, certainly at the university, we were the communicators of what you know, this cheer college was and what the vision is and who the students are and what their stories are and what their strengths are. And then finally, I have always been very quantitative um, in terms of looking at outcomes. So whether it was being a high school president at Loyola Manhattan or with students at Arupe College, at, at Arupe, certainly, are, what's, what's our retention rate? How does that compare nationally? What's our completion rate? Um, percentage of students on Pell, percentage of students on, on document. I was very, very focused on, on outcomes. And, you know, I think that trickled down and influenced my colleagues who maybe were a little bit less quantitatively oriented. You know, it was, yes, we're here with the students we're on this journey with them. But also, if we admit a student, we're saying to him or her, you know, we think that you have what it takes to graduate in a couple of years time and we're going to get you there. So I think those are uh, those are part of um, what I've experienced in terms of the startup of Rupert College. Certainly, the startup of, of Come to Believe. I have a terrific board there. I have a terrific team of of, of colleagues. We're a very lean group. You know, uh, the COO of uh, Come to Believe is a fellow named Sam Adams, who um, and that's really his name. He was the one who came up with the des the design grant, and that has accelerated our work with universities. They have a year to do a deep dive, to do their due diligence, to figure out whether this is a good fit for them or not. So, I mean, you know, uh, one of my best hires ever. You know, when I listen to you, um, to everything that you have described of the work that you do as a leader of a startup, 
eye here and eye on every layer of the work that we do with kids, you know, from caring about the questions that you ask them in an interview when you meet them for the first time to the food that you give, the services, the program, the hiring of the people that will care for them in the school, the board, the fundraising, I mean, all of it. And I think that is probably the best answer to the question of what does it feel like to be a leader of an educational startup? I mean, it is it is multi-layered and wide-ranging and exhausting in many ways. You know, it I, I also think about Steve, like your tell us a little bit about how it connects to your very early experiences with Nativity, um, with our Nativity schools, because you you were a, a key figure in that. And I think that's going to be an interest to our listeners as well. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. You know, I don't think there would have been an Arupe College without Cristo Rey High School. And I don't think there would be the Cristo Rey Network without uh, Nativity. So I really see this as a progression that's been happening since the, the early 1970s about um, Jesuits and really Jesuit colleagues saying, hmm, we're in this neighborhood where students are underserved. What can we do about it? You know, we've got a big problem here. And we think that Jesuit education, whether it's elementary ed, secondary ed, or post-secondary ed, we think that that can be uh, a solution, that this model can uh, be impactful in, for the, this community. So to your point, yeah, I started working at Nativity in 1982. Um, I was there for five years. I entered the Society of Jesus because of the work at Nativity. I mean, that was uh, that was not the plan in 1982. And it was crystal clear in 1987. I just so admired the chance I worked uh, with at that time. You know, what was the work? I would say, again, I wouldn't have used this language back then, but we found community with those students. We lived in the school uh, in the same neighborhood where the students lived. Um, it was all about belonging for those students, whether it was at the summer camp. Uh, which I worked at for five summers in Lake Placid or, uh, or, you know, after school or different school programs or certainly, you know, community in the classroom. I think all of these models just bring current personalis to life. I mean, again, what do the students need? What are you hearing from the students? You know, what are you learning from the students? How can we address uh, what they need or what they're interested in? And, and that's, you know, that's that that that's current personality really on steroids, whether it's on the, the college level, the high school level, or in uh, these cases at Nativity. And then later on, when I was a scholastic, I was part of a team that started the Gonzaga program, which was part of St. Aloysius School in, in Harlem. So yeah, I, I I do think that those experiences were really formative. Something that was key for me during those years, about midway of my years at Nativity. And this is in Jack Paziadlo's new book, uh, The Nativity Phenomenon. I'm glad he pointed this out. A wonderful, wonderful friend of mine and a great educator who just passed away recently, a very active parishioner at Xavier Parish in Manhattan, Rose Alaka. She and I created the graduate support program at Nativity. So for me, I'd been there for a few years. I knew kids who were going on to Xavier High School or LaSalle or other high schools in uh, mostly Manhattan, maybe Fordham Prep in the Bronx, maybe once in a while St. Peter's Prep in Jersey City, uh, but mostly Manhattan uh, uh, destinations. You know, we we created this program to support the graduates because that was a need that we were seeing that they were expressing. And so now that graduate support coordinator is just 
you know, a best practice. You know, yeah. I think that all schools do that. And um, I implemented that at Arupe. I wanted to know what was happening with our students once they continued at Loyola or went to a state school or went to work or went to Georgetown. And so um, that person, that that office, you know, uh, it was this was controversial at Loyola. They didn't see the value in it. So I said, we've been doing this for 40 years at Nativity School. So, you know, you're you're a little bit behind here. Let's let's go. <laughs> um, and it's, it's it's working. So that was one key experience that I had along with the community, the belonging, the express, uh, appreciating another culture. I mean, uh, another milestone for me was um, having the opportunity to study Spanish in the Dominican Republic uh, while I was at Nativity. I did that for a summer. You know, I came back and my Spanish was, oh God, the worst accent ever. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, my students and particularly their families were uh, so appreciative that I even made the trip. And I, I had visited places where they were from. And um, I knew their towns and I knew their cuisines and I all of that. You know, I, I wanted to better know them because at that time, the Lower East Side, the, pop, the dominant population at Nativity was Dominican. So it was a deep dive into that culture. And it was transformative for me, you know, and it really changed the way that I taught and interacted with students and parents. And do you think that's really at the heart of, I've heard you talk before about building ecosystems of support for kids. I mean, that's that's the start of it, isn't it? Just knowing knowing them, being with them in them in every way. Well, you know, one of the things that really interests me, Kristen, and again, so this is kind of based on my experience, which uh, it, it does encompass my work in elementary, secondary, and higher ed. I'd like to, us to start thinking about grades five through 14, and particularly uh, for folks who are from less affluent backgrounds. Now, I mean, we're already seeing some of this. You know, some of the Jesuit high schools have also built in uh, middle schools, and those become feeders for the high schools. I love the fact that in Jesuit secondary, there's a real sensitivity and a desire to enroll um, students from nativity model schools. And I know for, for a fact in higher ed, that um, members of the Association of Jesuit Colleges and Universities, Jesuit universities around the country, it does make a difference if you're from a Jesuit high school. And it does make a difference, particularly if you're from a Cristo Rey model high school. Those AJCU schools pay attention to that. So I, I, on a local level, I'm wondering if we could create ecosystems of grades five through 14 all through the years, you hear about silos, that there's there's a lack of communication between pre-secondary ed, secondary ed, and post-secondary ed folks. So let's address that on the local level. Let's identify schools, uh, elementary schools, whether they're nativity model schools or others, that work with students from low-wealth backgrounds. And what are their needs? What are they looking for from high school? And then let's identify those high schools, Christian race schools and others, that uh, also work with students from uh, less affluent backgrounds. And then as we get more and more of these two-year come to believe college models off the ground, they can be part of the conversation as well. I think quite frankly, you know, it would be a comfort for some students and their families to know, I have a place to go. You know, I mean, I'm in seventh grade now or sixth grade now. But, you know, we're hearing about all of these great high schools and this one's near me or this one has a football team and I'm an athlete or whatever it might be. And then farther down the road, further down the road, I should say, 
you're looking at one, you know, this college looks really interesting. And they had a program for my elementary school. So, you know, just planting the seeds early that there is a place and all of these places are designed for student success. What do we do to get students across uh, the finish line with a high quality uh, degree in a high touch atmosphere and an environment where they belong and where they don't incur a lot of debt? So, you know, as we go deeper, you know, as I said, uh, CTB, Come to Believe, sort of as an accelerator, as a foundation, and as a network. That might be some of our work with the network. And who knows? It would be fun to talk to networks like the JSN about how we might partner and identify some schools that could be good fits for the, this, you know, these grades five through 14 uh, ecosystems. So those are just, I mean, some of the things that, that, that may work for um, expanding this idea of ecosystems, of sharing values, sharing curriculum, sharing best practices, and, and sharing outcomes. Well, and it gets back to that idea of place that you mentioned with, you know, the kids at Arupe, just knowing that they are a part of the place that they belong, you know, to continue to use use that idea. But that idea of place, so that's one that all levels of school, pre-secondary and secondary are, ed are interested in as well. So it really is a, a point of connection. What do you see, Steve, as um, as coming next, you know, what do you, so what are your hopes? And you might've just answered that, but I'm, I'm interested in that. What, what comes next, both for come to believe, but also just for spreading this wider message? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, you know, we've been in startup mode for a while now, and I think what comes next is transitioning to finally to being a network, uh, with the announcement of more schools on uh, the coming weeks, that's going to, I think, catch a lot of people's attention and say, hmm, they're doing it. Maybe we should do it. So um, uh, I think that we'll be busy, I come to believe, as that that announcement uh, provokes more higher ed leaders to, to consider how this might be done in their areas and hopefully on their campuses. I think the other piece of this as well, just in terms of being part of the larger educational um, network, if you will, is sharing our best practices, particularly, and I mean, this, this is not like how that Arupe discovered this, but really using language of asset versus uh, deficit and being really intentional about that for educators, for classroom educators, how do they build community in their classrooms and how are students, you know, driving that community? Also, you know, as we spoke earlier, you know, for institutions, language matters. You know, how do we become uh, a less of a deficit-oriented communicator in describing our students? I think what's critical is providing these resources that, that students can build a reservoir of success and they can become self, uh, that they can advocate for themselves. Once they uh, experience access, once they know how to navigate, then they can advocate for themselves, knowing that these schools and these faculty members and administrators have their backs. And then finally, you know, and this is what Jesuit education does, you know, uh, learning from the students. What are their goals? What are they curious about? You know, I mean, for me, this is Ignatian spirituality. So a, a core tenet for me proceeding in this, in this landscape is uh, finding God in all things. So if you ever visit Arupe College in Chicago, in the um, lobby there, 
There's a painting that yours truly commissioned. So uh, Janet McKenzie is an extraordinary artist. She's based in Vermont. And I sent Janet photos of students from our first class, the inaugural class. And I said, Janet, I need you to do a painting of Jesus as an 18 or 19-year-old, as a college-age student. So she came back with Jesus of Arupe College. And this painting really draws people in. It's like almost like an icon. Uh, when I unveiled this at a school uh, liturgy, uh, and it was in the sanctuary, we, I explained the process, but I said, you know, this is what the Jesuits are talking about and what all of us are talking about. When St. Ignatius says, we find God in all things, we find God in you. And you help us to understand for Christians who Jesus is and who Jesus's friends were, because you know, God is working with you and through you and in you. So I think that was powerful for the students. It was powerful for the faculty community. And it was also delightful because students then would come to the painting and say, huh, is that me? Is that Twita? Is that Jose? Is that, you know, so they were seeing themselves in the painting, which in some ways was kind of a point. I kind of got um, on a, on a, a riff there, um, Kristen. I'm not sure if I answered that your question. But. No, you did. You did because okay. I, you know, when I, I, I just hear as you're helping kids come to believe that they belong, that they can do the work, you know, that they are a part of the place. You're you're really highlighting at the exact same time the impact that they have on the larger culture of the institution, you know, and it, like you said at the start, it isn't just these kids that we're helping along the way, but it's how these kids are helping us, you know? And I, I just think that that is probably the, the most powerful connection that of the work that you can do, at least as I, as I understand it, as I listen to you. Yeah. I mean, certainly Loyola university and university of St. Thomas, I really uh, admire the courage of uh, these institutions. You know, when I was hired to be the first dean, I was told, well, this is going to be very risky. And it was. But people at Loyola and the University of St. Thomas would say that their institutions are stronger and better because of their two-year colleges. That they have learned so much from the students, the graduates, the faculty, the staff, the best practices, the, all of that, that they're stronger institutions. And obviously, you know, uh, as mission-based um, institutions, you know, uh, people just point to the two-year colleges and say, we're so proud of what happens at these two-year colleges. And this is part of um, our large university and we're supporting their work and they're supporting ours. So it's, you know, uh, it's it's a great adventure for these um, institutions. Risky, but but so valuable. Sure. sure. No, and your work is just so respectful to the to the young person sitting in front of you, which I really admire. You know, I have to say, Steve, one of the things that I love about our work in Jesuit education is how paths connect and intertwine and listening to your experiences all along the way from from nativity on up. You know, it reminds me, I think I've known you for like probably 20 years, which is crazy to say out loud, but we've never yeah. worked together. But I've just always, you know, been a fan of your work. And of course, when I started at Loyola as principal, you had left as president, but your influence was all over the place. So, so it was, a, it's a real treat to get to listen and to learn about your work. Well, Kristen, thanks. It's great to collaborate with you and your colleagues at JSN. Um, I so appreciate the opportunity to talk about my current work and the 
uh, scope and vision for come to believe in the experiences of students that I've encountered when working this tier college model. And you never know, Kristen, we may have a chance to collaborate at some point, but yeah, our next 20 years. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So no, thank you. And I think we'll end on the note of uh, what you said about, you know, without belonging, there can't be education. And I think that again, is a, a point of connection for, for all of our listeners that are hopefully enjoying this conversation. So thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ignatian Inquiry podcast. Father Steve Katsouris's contact information and dissertation can be found on JSN's website at www.jesuitschoolsnetwork.org slash ignatian-inquiry-podcast. The Ignatian Inquiry podcast is hosted by Kristen Smith and Dr. Kristen Ross-Culley. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Kristen Smith and directed by Dr. Kristen Ross-Culley. To learn more about the Jesuit Schools Network, please visit www.jesuitschoolsnetwork.org. Stay curious and set the world on fire.